Hey kids, welcome back to On Stage, Off Stage. I'm your host, George Sapio, and this is episode 113, January 2019. Happy New Year, kids. I hope 2019 is a hell of a lot better than 2018 was. Okay, so we're kicking off with a double shot. We have Travis Russ, Artistic Director of New York City's Life Jacket Theater, and Anthony Devarskis, a Life Jacket creative collaborator and the author of the HowlRound.com article, Creating Theater from Reality, The Challenge of Documentary Theater. Uh, Documentary theater is a new subject for onstage, offstage. Uh, Normally, playwrights uh, work to make their characters as real as possible while maintaining a certain unity in their tactics, reactions, and choices. In a large sense, we create from inspiration, fashion our work from whole cloth, and remain true to the world that we invent. Documentary theater deals with actual persons, individual realities that come, in a large sense, pre-written. So we decided to kick off with a very obvious question. How do you make real people come to life on stage, real people now, all right, and maintain the truth of their journey while also keeping the audience engaged? Is there a tipping point between making them interesting or mining their interests, because uh, your ultimate goal here is to keep the audience wide-eyed and, uh, you know, fully attentive. Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I keep reminding the the company that we're not journalists, we're theater artists. Uh, and as theater artists, we're interested in telling a compelling and engaging story. We really want to make sure that characters have a true arc, have true compelling journey that audiences can connect to and follow and have an emotional attachment to. Journalists are responsible for just reporting the facts and letting the audience draw their own conclusion. Um, so it's a, it's a tricky balance. I mean, I, I'm an academic as well in another part of my life, and so I, I love uh, uh, sort of pulling back the curtain and uh, revealing uh, our process and putting that on stage. But we also want the the characters to live and breathe and be in that same space with the audience. Uh, Anthony, do you have any, uh, uh, what, what was your experience in, in working on the show? Yeah, I, I think, uh, Anthony, um, I think that um, it's a great question. I think the, the challenge is uh, that to find the pieces of people's stories that are uh, really the, the interesting things that uh, will jump out for an audience uh, without, um, George, I think you were getting at this, without kind of um, going over the tipping point of, of <laughs> uh, turning it into uh, using it just for you know dramatic purposes or making it seem unreal or things like that. And it, I, I think that's kind of the exciting part of it is that there's a lot of things we all do in our day-to-day existence that actually isn't very interesting. And so one of the things we did as part of the interview process is you spend time with people and you're uh, with them uh, on interesting times of the day and not interesting times. And you're hearing about their lives and the interesting parts of their lives and the parts that, you know, are just kind of the experience that we all uh, have exactly the same. Uh, and, and it's just a matter of waiting to hear them be uh, waiting for the point where they become comfortable enough to share those parts of their stories that are unique and uh have really defined them i mean because that's really i think what right what fiction writers do is they try to pull out the experiences that make their characters unique with us 
those experiences are there. Uh, they're just not, since we're not creating them, uh, we're waiting for someone to reveal them to ourselves, right, to us as we're talking with them. And it's a matter of just being attuned to that and really listening to people as we were, were interviewing them, I think. Gotcha. Um, somebody once said it's a good theater is life without the boring bits. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's true. That's true. And and, the, and another quotation is a great story happens to the person who can tell a great story. Um, and and to sort of backtrack a little bit in terms of our process for um, even the, the most recent show, America is hard to see. Uh, we we after all the interviews were done, we had over five thousand pages of interview transcripts. Wow. And how many of you were actually doing the interviews? <laughs> We had a team of only three people doing uh, about 75 interviews, um, but it actually worked in our favor because it's already a very small, tight-knit community, mm-hmm. and and so it was kind of nice to have a small team connect and build relationships with those folks. As Anthony mentioned, I mean, especially that was a very sensitive subject matter that we were dealing with, so it, it really helped that the, that the community... Uh, grew to know us, and 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 we were able to build close, tight knit relationships with them. So when we came back, we had over you know five thousand pages of transcripts, and then I expanded the team, and so I had everyone on the team read every page of every interview, and individually we highlighted the most interesting parts. And I, I kind of say, what 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 parts are most stage worthy? And then I had us put sort of those transcripts to the side, and of course I ended up. Uh, combining all of those transcripts, but I had just folks mention just from memory which parts resonated with them. Okay. And they, it was funny, like their instinct was to try to go back and want to manually comb through the interviews. And I said, no, no, no. If it's stuck with you, it's going to stick with our audience. And so we just brainstormed, just did a huge brain dump as to what stuck out to you as you were reading the interviews. And then what we did is we actually just pulled those bits and put them in a very uh, rough, rough script that was several hundred pages. And we just read it aloud. And and we asked those folks what resonated with you from those bits. And then we just kept those and we kept fleshing out. So we lost several characters over the over the journey. Okay, I'm I'm gonna stop you here for a second. I'm sorry. Um, because I want to get some background on what it is. You're talking about the project, but my audience doesn't know what the project is yet. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, it's called America is Hard to See. And it's a documentary piece. Please tell me about who your subjects are and uh, what you went through to get uh, to get through to them. Sure. So uh, uh, this is Travis. Uh, you write that the title is America's Hard to See, and it had an off-Broadway premiere uh, in Jan- this past January, uh, so almost a year ago. And... Um, Several years before that, uh, the company went to a small town called Pahokee, Florida. Uh, It's about an hour and a half inland from West Palm Beach. And we interviewed folks who were sex offenders who were living in this small town. And they lived in this village because it wasn't close to really anything. No parks, no bus stops. Um, you know, playgrounds, nowhere where children would, could congregate. No. Why were they there? Um, I mean, why, were these would, men- why, why would so many sex offenders go to one particular town? 
Yeah, they actually these these men about seventy five of them lived outside the city limits of Pahokee, Florida. Um, they lived in the middle, truly the middle of a sugarcane field, um, and 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 these houses were built back in the sixties for migrant workers who would harvest the sugar came fields by hand. But machines came in, took away the jobs. And so these houses were abandoned. And because the residency laws are so strict in the state of Florida, they really had no other choice but to live in the middle of nowhere. Uh, a lot of men who are um, convicted sex offenders who are released from prison, they often live under bridges because that, again, is, isn't close to, that, that fits the, the requirement. Um, it certainly isn't uh, acceptable housing, but it's, it's where they can live, not where they want to live. And so we spent several months, and actually we, uh, over the span of several years, we followed their lives as they tried to rebuild them and tried to live as much as they could in a normal life. And so this play um, was based on those transcripts. We had a composer come in and build songs based out of their transcripts. And so she would use their actual words and, and tell their story in song. And then we infused a number of traditional Methodist hymns because um, one of the characters in the play is a, a pastor from a local church and she is a rabble rouser. And she decided to reach out to these men and invite them into her church. And of course that caused a lot of conflict. And so this play is really about not necessarily their crimes, but their challenge to move forward and build a new life for themselves. And, and it's really testing the, the, the limits of forgiveness as, as human beings. Uh, so faith plays a, a critical role in the show. Wow, that's uh, quite a project. How long did this project take from inception to opening night? Three and a half years, which is actually not that long. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was, it was quite a daunting task. It's the most difficult project I've ever worked on. Um, and, uh, the show is actually going to go to Edinburgh for the festival this, this coming August. So we're excited to share it with an international audience. That should be interesting. Um, let me, I want to get a little bit of background on both of you. Anthony, tell me about your, uh, theatrical history. Uh, so I actually, uh, my theatrical history uh, is more in the playwriting area where uh, I work fiction, actually. So so writing plays and uh, working on that for a, a couple of years. And uh, then I've, uh, as I've been doing that, been working on some dramaturgy with uh, Travis and Life Jacket. And so I was excited to uh, be able to be engaged in the research work that was going on in this, um, even though it wasn't, you know, there was no fictional writing involved. Um, there were opportunities to kind of uh, explore characters that are real uh, and uh, and and see how their stories kind of would meld together in, in creating an arc overall. Um, and I've also done some work uh, outside of this realm, uh, also based kind of on real events, I guess, working with a group called Superhero Clubhouse, and they look at the intersection of environment and theater and how you might use theater to convey messages about the environment in a way that, uh, that you know, basic 
scientific facts and such might not connect with a, an audience, but yeah. maybe theater is another way of doing that. So. Seems like you're both big on social relevance in theater. <laughs> that That's an understatement. I, I'm really fascinated <laughs> with, with the uh, folks who live on the margins, either by choice or by force, okay. and really the outsiders of society. What's your what's your academic background? You mentioned before that you were, were in academics. Sure. So it's it's pretty eclectic, uh, which is probably what you're you're also picking up on. Uh, this is Travis, and uh, I used to um, be heavily involved in performance studies and uh, speech and debate, where we would take literature and perform it and add social commentary to the literature we were performing. Um, and then uh, now I teach uh, everything from performance to storytelling to uh, teaching entrepreneurs how to pitch their ideas and frame a, a cogent narrative about their ideas. That sounds dense. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, the, the challenge is how do you take um, something that's very highly theoretical yeah. and make it accessible to an audience? And how do you organize a, a compelling story when it might be very fragmented and might be very hard to follow? That, that's what really thrills me as, a, as an artist. Sounds like you like big projects. That's also an understatement, yeah. yes. <laughs> Anthony, I, I see, Anthony, that um, you're an academic writer in the field of environmental economics, um, which has, that sentence has an awful lot of syllables in it. Um, but how does your experience with environmental economics and these, these cold, hard, non-negotiable facts that you have to deal with how does that work into, in, into your playwriting? Do you find yourself limited by the material or do you find it somehow enlightening? Oh, well, actually, I've always found it uh, enlightening, actually, to go to a world where uh, maybe there's a little more looseness, although I guess we have looseness with facts, but uh, where there's more looseness with facts in writing. Um, and I mean... You know, what's interesting about like environmental economics in that world and, and science in general, right, is the, the creativity that's in the process of interpreting the various facts that are kind of that are laid out before you. Right. Because you can reach different conclusions with a set of a, a set of facts and, and what they might mean. Uh, now, there are some conclusions that are you know better supported than others. But uh, so, so it is this this puzzling process that's involved in environmental economics and any science, I think, um, which actually translates translated pretty pretty well to these kind of theater based on real events right because you're you're taking kind of these pieces of what's real and what people tell you and what they don't tell you right and so there's a part of what they don't tell you so you're trying to create what they mean what what is the overall meaning of what you're seeing based on the pieces of what they're showing you which are you know their interpretations of of, of facts uh and, and, and translating that into something that hopefully uh, is uh, authentic and real and, and some kind of more universal truth, I guess. Um, but sounds like so there's overlap for sure. Yeah, but, uh, sounds like you're filling in the missing pieces of a jigsaw puzzle. Yeah, yeah, that's how I kind of think of it a lot of times. Yeah, but and, but I will say, like when I do fictional playwriting, it definitely is more of it feels like a little bit of a release from economics and environmental stuff in a way because. You can you, you can make up a world where certain things do or don't exist, right? Uh, yeah, so. yeah. 
but you have to remain true to that world. There has to be that exactly that essence of unity within whatever it is that you've created. Yep, exactly. This is uh, Travis, and I just want to chime in on 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 one thing. I think what's also uh, exciting about I don't know if you want to call it investigative theater, or docu theater, mm-hmm. docu drama, but um, competing facts and competing perspectives and competing stories are actually quite thrilling from a dramatic perspective. And so uh, I know when I first start on a play, I really want to create a very tight knit, very clear uh, narrative and journey for the audience to follow. But every, every time I try to do that, the facts get in the way and they start rubbing up and, and, and clashing with each other. Mm. And instead of fighting that, I, I've learned to try to embrace it. And, and I have to like catch myself every single project. Uh, uh, what I think is a problem is actually inherent drama in the play. And that's exciting. So you don't want to fix that problem. You actually want to highlight that problem. Yeah. So, for example, with America's Hard to See, some of our interviewees, uh, particularly um, uh, some of the folks who got out of prison, they would tell one version of their story. But then when we we compared it to the story that was told during their trial, it sometimes conflicted and sometimes very important facts uh, didn't necessarily align from one story to the next. And instead of instead of prioritizing, like, say, a journalist would do to say, here's what we have sussed out as being the facts of the case, we actually just presented both and let the audience choose which to feel is more, more truthful. Uh, but that's the- theatrically very exciting. And 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 I don't feel an onus to promote a particular agenda in a show. Yeah, it's uh, it sounds like a, a tricky uh, a loophole to, to get around. I'm reminded of a small lyric by uh, the late Warren Zevon, who said, if I could only get my record clean, I'd be a genius. <laughs> and I think that rings true for <laughs> many of us. But um, I, I, I want to lead back into, thank you for, for, for going there, uh, lead back into America is Hard to See. Subject matter, we're talking with sex offenders and a community of sex offenders, especially these days, that is a term that brings up a visceral response. How did you work your way into this community? How did you build a trust? And did you have any personal issues to get past when dealing with these folks? Uh, wow, there are a lot of questions there. Yes, there are. Sorry about that. I'll remind you as we go along. <laughs> but uh, but that's also exciting, too, is that there are so many issues wrapped up into this one subject. And um, I think it's important to – this is Travis, by the way. I think it's important to, to note that um, w- when we stumbled upon this topic – we we didn't think, oh, yes, this is the next show for Light Jack. This is the one we are going to do. That's intriguing, but I'm not going to do that show. But the second that came out of my mouth or, like, entered my head, I thought, oh, that's the show you have to do. You have to do the one, one that you don't want to do, which you know it's theatrically interesting and caused me a lot of – I have started calling it emotional confusion, and that's actually the experience – 
uh, I want my audience to go through is you start feeling for these folks and then you start realizing, ah, oh, remembering what they did and that they hurt another human being, but yet they're trying to rebuild their lives and they're actually building relationships with people you care about in the play because they're actually human beings and they're trying to move forward and versus living in the, in the past. Um, so, uh, yeah. Is it a complicated topic? Yes. Is it a worthwhile topic? Yes, because this this does exist, and ignoring it doesn't really do anybody any good. And and until we address this topic head on, we we can't solve it. Um, it's always existed. Um, uh, the Greeks talked about it. Uh, they dealt with very controversial issues, and they chose theater as an interesting forum to have these very public discussions. And we actually do, we sort of do an homage to to Greek theater in, in the show where uh, uh, several concepts and, and conceits in the staging and the construction of how the story unfolds. But the goal is to begin the conversation. It's not a, It's not really even a debate. It's telling these people stories and allowing our audience to begin the conversation. And, and in fact, um, we did about seven talkbacks throughout the, the run of the show and the off-Broadway version in New York City. And most of the audience stayed. And I rarely see that happening. Usually it's a handful of people. Yeah, that doesn't happen but, a lot with talkbacks. No. 80 to 90 percent of our audience stayed and wanted to engage in a conversation. We had to kick people out of the lobby because we were closing the theater after the talkback. Yeah. Um, what was the audience response to this sort of material? I, people wanted to come. Uh, we were almost sold out every night. Uh, uh, really in, in, engaged audiences. Um, and uh, often people would... would, would would um, chase me down in the lobby and they would talk about how they're again, what that the, the phrase that I had already mentioned was emotional confusion. They would echo that back to me. Um, it, it's a difficult journey. It's a difficult piece to perform. It's a difficult piece to watch. Uh, a lot of the folks that we interviewed from Florida actually flew up to New York and saw themselves reflected back to them on stage. That was a unique process as well. What was the response to that? <laughs> Anthony, do you want to talk a little bit about, that was actually our first public performance. Uh, Anthony, do you want to talk about what it was like to watch people watch themselves on stage? Or were you there for that first night? I don't remember. Uh, I, I was not there for that first evening, I don't believe. Um, but I was there, they, they came up subsequent times. And I think what was really exciting was, well, <laughs> uh, so to back up one little bit, uh, I think one of the things, right, that we are trying to do is we talked about, you know, finding the interesting pieces of all of these stories for theater, for theatrical purposes, but we want to make sure these are accurate reflections of the people they're representing, which is, you know, this challenge that we have, that it, it, it's, not hyperbole, et cetera, et cetera. So what was really exciting was to, to, to hear them say that that they saw each other, right, in those characters, right, that they knew that, like, we would hear la laughter in the audience from the people who were coming up from Florida because they said, they, you know, they were like, that is so how that person acts, right, because they re it really embodied them. And, uh, 
And I, I think for some, and Travis, maybe you have some additional stuff to say on this. I think for some of them, actually, uh, they hadn't necessarily thought about maybe some of the things they said in the way they come out. Uh, and and it made them reflect a little bit more about why they may have reacted in a certain way and why they thought a certain way about something at a time. Um, and some of them really just had emotional reactions to it. Uh, there were there were tears, as you might expect, uh, as people heard their own stories in some cases, uh, or the stories of people they had lived with in the community uh, told from from their own perspective. So. It, it, it was a really interesting and strange thing, and it, honestly, it was pretty. Travis, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think for the product, for uh, the research team, uh, and those involved in it, it was a little nerve-wracking thinking that these folks are in the audience and watching this because they could have said, you know, this this is entirely under, this is completely untrue. That, that's not the way we are, but they didn't, and that made us feel like at that we succeeded, right, in capturing things and also making it dramatically interesting at the same time. Yeah, I was, I was, this is Travis, I was terrified that um, I think most of the people we interviewed, some were not able to travel outside the state of Florida, weren't able to travel outside of the county they lived in in Florida. Uh, but some folks were off probation, so they were able to see themselves in the show. I was terrified. Of course, I didn't tell my cast that the people that they were playing in the show were in the audience that night. Yeah, uh, they were, uh, they, <laughs> Well, the, I did announce it after the show at the curtain call, and both the cast and the audience were equally surprised. Um, and, and the cast had not met these people, so it's not like they looked out and they were able to, to, to spot them by, by face. Yeah. Uh, I purposely allowed the cast to develop, and this goes back to your actually opening question of, of of translating fact into uh, theatrical uh, life, uh, I let the cast just use the script and build their own versions of of the characters that they they just uh, instinctually knew to create. Uh, I didn't have them listen listen to the interview transcripts. I didn't have them look at pictures of the real people didn't have them watch interviews um they just use their own humanity and their own empathy to devise their own versions of these real people right i think that's a great um, point. But it was these weren't supposed to be impersonations so to speak they were they were they were something other than that so and i was as we were developing the script, uh, I was working, you know, with Anthony and with some other researchers and along with the composer, Priscilla Holbrook, who did a fabulous job. Folks can go to our website and listen to some, they can watch some of the videos that include some of the music that, that Priscilla wrote and um, reorchestrated. Uh, I was telling Priscilla, I was like, I don't know, I feel really uncomfortable putting these contrasting facts from their legal cases alongside their personal stories because these people uh, we've developed relationships with these people but i knew i had a responsibility um as an artist to tell uh the contrasting stories and priscilla said you know what travis if you are honest and you tell an honest story and you craft a truthful portrait of these people and their journeys they are going to find the value uh, in the show, and they're going to um, find that a more complete 
an honest portrait of them of them and their story. And she was 100% right. The things that I kind of cringed at in crafting the script actually were the most vulnerable parts of the show. And and it was sort of cathartic for them. And again, I don't want to put words in their mouth, but what they reflected back to me, yeah. they um, valued that I didn't pull any punches, but I I told the story with care and with truth and authenticity and uh, told their story, their complete story. Uh, and it was, it was, it, it reminded me not to judge other people and their story, just to tell their story yeah. and tell it in a, a, a theatrically compelling way. It seems to me that you, the both of you and, and Life Jacket in, in particular bit off a huge responsibility when it came to bringing this story to the public because you have to have veracity of translation. The facts have to be right. You have to do justice. I mean, this is not like writing a, a, an historical play about somebody who's been dead for a hundred years. Where, you know, you can take liberties and right. uh, th there's no repercussions. We're talking about live people here. We're talking about right. the play actually happening in front of them. Their words, their personalities, their crimes being brought to the stage. I mean, uh, it's absolutely a, a daunting. You must have been terrified. Um, and my next question is something I touched on earlier, and then I want to move on to a couple other things. Um, how did you build their trust? How did you walk into their community, describe your project, and get these folks to open up to you. So it's 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 this is Travis. It's interesting that um, the people who ran the the village where the men were, were living did not want to have anything to do with us. Um, they wouldn't return our calls. They wouldn't return our emails. But remember, I mentioned there was this pastor, and and she is in her fifties, and she's um, made several career transitions, and this is her most recent career transition where she decided to become a pastor. Um, and her seminary placed her in Pahokee, um, and uh, and she would say this that that it's not one of the plum jobs that are often offered to pastors right after seminary school. And but they said, you know, this is what we have. Would you like it? And so she decided to take it. And it was a small congregation. It, you know, it had you know it ranged from like several dozen uh, on an on an average Sunday, but it used to have hundreds in her church um, before she arrived, years before she arrived. And so she wanted to shake things up. She decided to reach out to these men and invite them to her church. And then so when I called her, I made the effort, once I wasn't getting a response from the actual village, I called her. I said, I'd love to tell not only their story, but your story and, and why you chose to reach out to them. And uh, the reason why she chose to reach out to them is actually pretty similar to the reason why we chose to do the story was because it, it's part of humanity. And and she wanted to um, um, uh, for faith, faith based reasons to. Um, pull them in and make them part of the true 
tr- true um, community in her church. Uh, so she was eager to get that story out, and so that's why she said yes to us. And oh, I think I think this was a huge, huge factor in us being able to get so many stories and get so many people to trust us. It was because Pastor Patty Opperly, that's her name. Uh, introduced us to people in her church and people out in the um, sex offender community that suddenly we had their immediate trust because she she had been there several years to that point. Uh, She was our catalyst in in, in making a connection. And and without her, the play probably wouldn't exist or wouldn't, it definitely wouldn't exist in its current form. Yeah. I think that that was key. And and this is Anthony. I think also... We, Travis alluded to it earlier on uh, with one of the initial questions. It was good that actually our research team was small, that there were the three of us going down to do these interviews, um, because otherwise I think it would have felt uh, overwhelming for them, A, because it's a small town, and B, just, you know, when we, got inv- when we were invited to dinners that they were having at the church, right, we were able to, the three of us, sit down with each of them and get to know them, right? Informally, not as part of an interview, right? Uh, And so that helped to build kind of this relationship where when we were talking to them about difficult subjects, they were were more willing to share and be open. Um, And I think that's also part of their own process, Uh, not to put words in their mouth, but I think they would say that. Uh, Travis can correct me if he thinks otherwise, but that them telling their stories after they trusted us, them telling their stories was part of uh, them being able to acknowledge their crimes and figure out how to move forward. Uh, so I, I, it, was, it, it wasn't easy, uh, but it was, uh, it, 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 I would say it's, it was pretty transformative in a lot of ways. So. This is Travis. Uh, just because of scheduling reasons, I went down a few days earlier than um, Anthony and one of our other research members, Amelia Parento. Uh, and so I actually... It, it, it was it was less intimidating because it was just me. Uh, there wasn't a team of us that parachuted in and, and, and put microphones in people's faces. <laughs> so it was just me, and um, it was very casual at the very beginning. Um, uh, and actually, Pastor Paddy needed a ride somewhere that was like an hour away, and so I volunteered to, to drive her. And so that gave me an hour with uh, no interruptions and just me and her in a car talking uh, an hour there, an hour back. Uh, but that was just a coincidence. And then it was funny, like I was telling them, you know, in a few days, you know, Anthony and Amelia are coming. They're like, I don't know about them. <laughs> we like you, but we don't know about them. We, we, they're total strangers. I said, I was a stranger just a few days ago. And, and of course, once they met Anthony, once they met Amelia, then the, they, they developed immediate relationships. They like, sometimes they, they like them better than they like me. So um, <laughs> I think rapport is so critical and being oh, yeah. on the ground um, and just being casual on the front end. I, we, we rented a, a, a cabin there and we'd have folks over, we would do cookouts and it's just, it has to grow organically. And every the- theater project uh, that is qualitative in nature, that involves research, uh, interviewing people, you just like have to let the process guide itself. And the, the best way to let that happen is to be present, physically present, and just spend time with people. And more time is better, 
Um, but it's really about the quality of, of the time that you're spending, not necessarily the quantity of time. Okay. That's, uh, sounds like about four or five jobs in and of itself. Um, Life Jacket Theater, how long has it been in existence? How did it get started? We started in, this is Travis, we started in 2014, so we're a relatively young theater company. Uh, fortunately, uh, several of our shows have uh, made an impact in New York City. And we started it um, to create shows that we wanted to see. We wanted to see work that was truthful, that told, undertold stories of people who live on the margins, and to fuse investigative theater making style with visually compelling uh, aesthetics. Um, and we are tending to take a different approach with every show we do. So America is Hard to See had a interview-based approach, the previous show about the artist and uh, author Edward Gorey had a completely different approach because Edward Gorey um, is no longer alive. So I we, wish um, I had said that. I love Edward Gorey's work. He's fabulous. He's such an enigma. Uh. Um, and so that's a completely different aesthetic and completely different research approach because we only had his interviews, we had his sketchbooks, we had some letters, we had some diary entries. But talk about contradictory information from a single source oh, yeah. uh, that was all about uh, 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 comparing and contrasting um, one person's uh, self-told life story and then our our next show is 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 going back even further uh, and trying to dig up trial transcripts of gay men who were incarcerated simply because they were gay right the gorgeous uh, nothings yeah the gorgeous nothings and so we love challenging ourselves with new um, different research methods. Um, but we also want to, we never want to forget that we're telling a theatrical story. It's got, we've got to take the, the audience on a journey. It, it shouldn't feel like research. And it's kind of funny. Um, when, I think there was one person who, who, um, uh, caught up with me after they saw America's hard to see. And they said, this is a compliment. Uh, and I love docudrama. And I love investigative theater, but it didn't feel like investigative or theater or do a docudrama. I forgot that I watch I was watching a play based on transcripts. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I took that as a compliment because yeah, they really? wrapped up in the story. And, and it's funny, like, again, I, I, I never try to hide the research. And what I mean by that is the actors will step out of their roles and talk to the audience and um, as sort of a, 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 a theatrical vehicle in America's Hard to See, they would read our research notes. So the research notes that I wrote, that Anthony wrote, very factual, um, where did the interview take place, um, uh, kind of what was the environment like the temperature outside, uh, very factual things to create the environment because the aesthetic of this show was very much in the spirit of our town. So no sets, no curtains, mm -hmm. um, just them, just the actors and the audience. Wow. Um, I want to talk about the, the research for a, for a couple of moments, having done some small amount of research on my own, various projects, uh, one of which was a play. Um, uh, you come across book A or testimony A, which says X happened, and you come across uh, testimony C or book C that says, well, X didn't quite happen that way. It happened this way. 
and testimony G, which says something completely different. How do you reconcile all, you know, competing, conflicting historical views? I mean, you're going into uh, production, The Gorgeous Nothings, which I want to hear about the, uh, the subject matter, but how do you sift through the historical inconsistencies? Anthony, do you want to take a stab at that? Yeah, I, I think what's, what's exciting, <laughs> actually what we've, we've, we've tended toward and um, is, is not trying to, is highlighting the inconsistencies, both in Gory and in America's Hard to See. We really, we're trying to figure out, well, do we, is the audience going to be too confused if we present these different alternate realities, actually, that may or may not have happened? With Gory in particular, right, it was interesting. He didn't, he would tell some part, and you may know this set, being a Gory fan, he would tell some people some things about his life um, and other people other things, and the things he told to these different people didn't necessarily line up, right? Uh, and then what he said in interviews didn't line up with what he said in other, you know, there, there wasn't a good consistency. But, and in America's hard to see, like we said, that sometimes we heard stories that didn't match up with court-reported testimony. So we leaned into being being open about that and leaving it to the audience to either uh, draw a conclusion if they wanted to. But I think what's more interesting is that in both cases, the audience had to... Uh, which may not be the best. Maybe we're maybe we're taking the wrong approach. Maybe audiences don't love doing this, but the audience would actually have to be okay with not knowing for sure what what was the reality um, and uh, just taking in these various things that may have been the case and and interpreting the characters from that perspective. So I think that's that's I think how we've kind of approached this now. We haven't had it happen yet, and we may with this with the gorgeous nothings. But we haven't had a source that, you know, can't we can then discount because it's been shown to be untrue. That that of course we wouldn't include a perspective that uh, is not valid from a factual basis. But um, yeah, it's an interesting balance, and I think we've we've just tried to bring in as much of that diversity of. <laughs> fact in quotes that's out there um, without trying to say what it say what it means at the end of the day uh, because yeah yeah I found audiences to be uh, unpredictable and persnickety when they don't get all of the facts lined up neatly and presented <laughs> to them some of them are able to deal with yep. the, the the natural vagueness of the, the obscurity of life as we know it in, in modern <laughs> America or whatever and other people are, well, it, this didn't make sense. And, and I want to know what happened here. And, and I don't feel like I, oh, my gosh. But Yeah, I think this is Travis. I think we, we definitely experienced that with America's Hard to See. Mm -hmm. that Some folks got frustrated that they didn't know what I thought as the playwright. They didn't know what, how they should, how they, how I wanted them to feel about particular characters. And um, I, I had to sort of just embrace that that was going to be a reaction of an audience member or some audience members, that that they were going to like some of the characters in some moments and weren't going to like them in others. And it was up to them how they should feel about that. Again, that was the spirit of the play. It was wrapped up in emotional confusion. Yeah. Yeah. Ahead, and it certainly led to, and to your point, George, it 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 led to some confusion in some audience members, where 
it wasn't just a like um, cognitive confusion, like a logical confusion about X, Y, Z kind of thing, but an emotional confusion, right, for them where, oh, I went into this thinking I was going to feel one way about this. Like I went in being like, oh, I can't, you know, sex offenders, I can't believe what they've done. And I went in with that attitude and I left with a different emotional confusion about how I think about sex offenders, their crimes, what we should do about them moving forward with their lives, all of these things, right? That, that it's, the play didn't say, to, didn't say, hey, sex offenders aren't so bad. And it didn't say <laughs> sex offenders are terrible, right? It, it was yeah. just a presentation of, of their lives. So. Right. I, this is Travis. I'm, I'm less I'm less interested in cognitive confusion as a as a theatrical language um, where you go in and you're like, I can't follow the story. Like you never want the audience to get ahead of the story, but you don't want them to get, to get too far behind the story. You yeah. just want to be ahead of them just a little bit. So uh, for me, um, cognitive confusion happens when the play is so far ahead of you as an uh, as an audience member that you just you, you're just it's exhausting to keep up with it yeah, i'm not interested in that as a theater maker um but i am interested in emotional confusion where you're following the story you're following the characters you're following the journey and you're having an emotional journey but it's a conflicting emotional journey to me that's really exciting oh that's valid right but some audience members find it frustrating. They want to have this nice sort of roller coaster ride that has a very slow and 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 seamless uh, journey from beginning to end, where it's like I'm following it along and you have this natural arc and everything's tied up with a nice little, nice little bow at the very end. I'm not necessarily That's interested in that. That's the blockbuster movie. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And there are plenty of there are plenty of amazing shows. Like uh, there's there's there there are plenty of shows that I love that follow that natural arc, whether it's the movies or Broadway shows or even off Broadway shows. Yeah. Um, but it's not necessarily the work that that I'm interested in making. What's wrong with making the audience think about things after they've left the mm -hmm. theater? Mm -hmm. Yeah, because. It's, your material lends it to that. We, you know, it's right. highly sensitive, very difficult material, and to wrap it up with a, you know, a nice little bow and a, and a, you know, chocolate on the pillow next to it is sort of a disservice. Right, I right. Think. And I, I want them. I want the audience to feel like they're, they're part of the research team. Yeah. Uh, and and of course it's it's. It, it's it's a truncated research process. You know, there's a difference between spending several years on a project and spending 90 minutes watching a show. Right. But at least have sort of a sneak peek um, in terms of the investigative process. So that's why we embed a lot of our research notes into the script. The actors step out of role and talk to the audience and give them context as to they'll cite sources um, and they'll give commentary in terms of of helping audiences understand where this material came from. Cool. I want to hit on one last thing and I will let you guys go back to doing your next wonderful project. Um, you mentioned before you had 5,000 pages of interviews <laughs> and you were writing all of this stuff up. And I have to assume that there had to have been so much good material in there. Uh, for those of uh, in the audience who are not in the choir, there's a thing called killing your darlings or, <laughs> or killing your babies or wh whatever it happens to be. And that's 
after you've created something that you really like and you realize there's no room for it in the final project, how much of this did you have to do and how much emotional trauma did it cause you? <laughs> oh, dear. The, yeah, oh, that's a good one. Huh? A lot of pages. Yeah, that's a great question. There are a lot, a lot of pages. Um, <laughs> and in fact, I like to, before we go to Edinburgh, I'm going to go back through and comb through all 5,000 pages of those transcripts. Because now that we've done one pass, of, we've actually done several passes of the show, but now that we've had a full production and we're doing another full production, to go back and just make sure I didn't miss any true gems. So like, you know, did we kill any darlings that we, should, we shouldn't have killed? Okay. Uh, and uh, But we, we lost several, like I mentioned, we lost several characters, um... And it was it was hard because we worked really really um, to to great we, we invested a great deal of effort in in securing some of the interviews that actually we didn't yeah end up using um, yeah go ahead Anthony yeah and even more than that I think I think one of the right killing darlings in fiction is like it's kind of easy in some I mean not easy it's hard but. Uh, <laughs> these were real people that we had talked to, right? And that we had developed relationships with and whose story we thought was a, you know, is a story that that they had shared with us and that they put time into sharing with us and that deserved to be told. The challenge was we couldn't tell all of the stories in 90 minutes and all of these stories uh, just couldn't be on the stage at the same time without leading to cognitive confusion that we were talking about before for the audience in terms of tracking stories. Sure, so yeah. it was hard to say, gosh, this person, oh, you know, sitting down with this person was for me such a meaningful experience. I wish the audience could have that experience too, but we just can't, right? Like that, that story can't come out there. And it was hard. I, it, Travis was, was the master killer in this, but, uh, yeah, it was tough for, for those of us on the research team to watch them. Did you just call him the master killer? The... I know, yeah. I, I guess I'll, I'll own that. that <laughs> There's a conversation um, that happens after this is over. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it is it, it, it is challenging, and it's different than, than, than writing a traditional play. The traditional yeah. play, you start with a, a core cast of characters, and then you start following them, and then they take you on a journey throughout the, the, the writing process. Here, we have a we have more than a cast of characters. We have a mob of characters and we have to figure out whose journey is most interesting and how do they connect with each other to tell a, a, a cogent journey. Wow. It's challenging. Yeah, so it, it's, it's, it's a, yeah. it, yeah, it's a deductive process where we're, we're cutting rather than creating. Better you than me. That would, I'd be weeping. Well, Travis Russ and Anthony Devarskis of Life Jacket Theater, thank you guys so much for being here and taking the time and talking about these very, very interesting projects. Tell our audience how they can find out more about yourselves, about Life Jacket Theater, uh, online and otherwise, please. Sure. You can uh, access our website at lifejackettheater.org, and that's theater with an R-E. And you can follow us on social media at LifeJacketNYC. And, George, it's been a pleasure chatting with you. It's been quite an honor. Thank you for having us. Anytime, yes. guys. This was great. Hey, kids. Thanks for listening to On Stage, Off Stage. On Stage, Off Stage is produced monthly, and all of our shows can be found at OnStageOffStage.org and also on iTunes. 
If you enjoy what we do, please recommend us to your friends. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at OnOffStage. And if you are a theater artist with an upcoming project of interest or work in a part of theater we haven't covered yet or know of someone in the theater world who'd make some great chat, please send us a note at info at OnStageOffStage.org. OnStage Offstage believes in and advocates for a world where all people are free to live their lives as they wish, in peace and without fear. We believe in universal respect, diversity, and equality in all areas of life for all people, no matter what their nationality, race, religion, age, sexual status, or gender. Onstage Offstage will never promote or endorse those who seek to diminish others because of who they are. I'm George Sapio. Thank you once again, and happy theatering to all of you. (laughs) 